Hi, this is Professor of Photography Jeff Curto, and welcome to class session number six of History of Photography. This class session deals with the idea of painting and photography, looking at the history of painting, looking at the history of photography, and seeing how the two have had a relationship since before photography's invention. So here we are joining our class in progress. So before we kind of get started on our topic for today, I want to talk briefly about how we see and what we see, how we see and what we see, and sort of this is uh, uh, in some ways kind of just helping us begin to think about what it is that we're looking at when we look at the things that we're, oops, when we look at the things that we're looking at on screen. There we go. Push the button one too many times. So tell me what we know about this photograph. Harbor Town? No. There's, there's some boats, there's some water. What else do we know looking at it? Just like looking at the way in which it was made, the kinds of things that are in the frame, how those things are rendered photographically. Tell me how we know what we know. There's some blurry people that are moving. There's some blurry people that are moving. Photographer looks like they're up high. Substantial buildings along the side for the framing. Fairly substantial buildings. Is this the albumin process? What would make you think that it might be the albumin process? The tone. The tone or the color of it? Mm -hmm. The sky. There's no sky. There's no sky detail. So no sky detail suggests potentially the overexposed blue sky from wet plate collodion, possibly, right? But what else could cause that? What else could cause this sort of fog. fog or haze or smoke or something, right? So that's entirely possible as well. So it, it could be one or it could be the other. So now let's take a look at this image. Tell me what we know about this image. Pretty distinct, meaning sharp. Sharp. A lot of detail. A lot of detail. Still no sky. Speak up. Blank sky. Or it could be just an overcast sky. Is there any relationship between this picture and the previous picture? I feel like they're the same place, just reversed. Yes. 180 degrees reversed. So what gives you that clue? That dot, that the foreground where that goat is. This little thing with the steps. This little hexagon, I think I remember in that in that previous image. Water's on the right, water's on the left. Water's on the right, water's on the left. So the camera's just changed position. No, it's not the same photo. But it sort of seems like it might be the same location. Is one a painting? Say again? Is one a painting? What do you think? Some yes, some no. Is there any blurriness? That's the paint. Is there any blurriness like, in this picture? I feel like there's, are those people up above that goat? Yeah. Or cow that yeah. are in the blurry? Yeah, they're yeah, Maybe a little bit. They're taking a tour. <laughs> this guy's maybe a little blurry over here. So this picture was made in 
Benares, India in 1870 by a British photographer named Samuel Bourne. Right. Samuel Bourne. <clears throat> so he is in, in India in 1870 making therefore, since we know that it's now 1870, we know that the underlying technological pieces are Bernie's got it. Yeah. <laughs> wet plate collodion. And because it is in 1870 with wet plate collodion, we also can assume that it is an albumin print. And albumin prints typically were kind of brownish in color, oftentimes toned with gold to kind of give them a kind of purpley color. So now, what about this next picture? An American photographer, Linda Connor, in 1979, wow. photographing also in Benares, India. <laughs> Linda Connor uses an 8 by 10 inch camera to produce photographs on black and white negative film from a camera that makes a negative 8 by 10 inches in size. And she uses a kind of paper that actually is no longer manufactured, she stockpiled a bunch of it, <clears throat> that is similar to albumin paper in that it is a printing out paper. Those of you who've worked in the darkroom know that the paper that we use in the darkroom today is developing out paper. You expose it, nothing happens, you put it in developer, it appears. The same kind of paper uh, is available to Linda Connor, but she prefers to print by going out into the sun with this material called printing out paper, which gets darker upon exposure to light, very much like albumin printing paper. So her strategy is similar to Samuel Bourne's, but 100 years later, right? 109 years later. Kind of amazing, right? And part of what I'm aiming at here is to help you see that when you look at a photograph, now that you're beginning to sort of think about some of the clues that are buried inside of them, like blurred subject matter, like blank sky, like uh, you know some of the other you know, the color of the image, God bless you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all of that stuff now starts to become both like great and helpful, but also perhaps problematic. Because one of the things that's really interesting about photography over the last, let's say, 100 years, is that as the technology has advanced, many photographers have reached back into the history of the medium to find pieces of technology that suit them in a particular way. So Linda Connor wants to be able to make contact prints. She wants to be able to make prints on this particular kind of paper because she likes the way it looks, the way the image feels after she's made it. So she's backed up and instead of using technology that would have been perhaps more appropriate for her time period, in the mid to late 70s. She's using older style technology. And we're gonna see that over and over again as different photographers from different eras begin to reach back into the history of the medium to find particular pieces of technology that suit the way they wanna work. Uh, so it's, it's actually one of the things that is most interesting about uh, the medium in today's time is that while digital photography is obviously the sort of king of the mountain, there's a lot of people doing wet plate collodion. There are a 
lot of people doing daguerreotypes, a lot of people doing tintypes, a lot of people doing a wide variety of different photographic processes because they like the way it looks or the way it feels or the way that process of doing it suits them. Uh, so, uh, you know, pretty interesting idea there. And I, you know, I definitely set you up, right? You know, <laughs> most assuredly. But it's interesting to kind of see that because in some ways this picture looks even a little bit older, right? You know, looks a little bit older than that one. Do uh, you think that's because of the sky or because of the process? I think it's probably because of the process and probably because of the day. You know, yeah, you know, there's probably a lot of haze and, you know. By the amount of people on that beach, those, are those people? Yeah, yeah. here. Because I was like, here. yeah, I was like, that seems like a lot of people on the beach for back they're in fishermen. the day. I don't know if it's the beach exactly, but. It looks like they're, they're fishermen, aren't Fish, they? Fishermen, people who are using the water to purify themselves. Washing clothes? I don't know. Washing clothes. All right. So our primary topic for this afternoon is, is this one, painting and photography. So, I mean, you know, we've sort of talked around this in a wide variety of ways, right? We've sort of talked about the fact that as photography came on the scene, it was really solving problems for people who wanted to paint faster or better than they were able to paint. And this relationship that painting and photography has had is one of symbiosis. We have to go way back to those, you know, bio classes from somewhere, you know, somewhere deep in our past to remember that word of symbiotic relationship, which is a relationship that is mutually beneficial, that each party sort of somehow gets something from the relationship uh, that, uh, that solves the problem for, you know, for them. So uh, we're going to take a look at this relationship that painting and photography have, have had and see if we can kind of come up with some ways that we can answer uh, some of these questions. So, and again, you know, symbiosis, a relationship of mutual benefit. One of the things that I think we're going to see at the, by the end of our class today is how painting influenced photography. Uh, and, you know, we've already sort of talked about this stuff, and it's not going to be that surprising to discover that early uh, photographs we're trying to, in some ways, mimic paintings, um, and about how painters really defined what these pictures were supposed to look like, because that's what pictures were until photography was invented. But there's another piece to the puzzle, which is how photography influences painting. And how photography influences painting turns out to be, in some ways, more important. So I think I've asked this before. How many of you, at some point, have had an art history class? And in those art history classes, how many times did they talk about the history of photography? None, none to next to none, right? They might give it a little passing sort of nod, but generally not. And it's really kind of shocking. And it was shocking to me as a, as a young art student growing up and sort of saying, wait a second, don't you understand how this stuff has changed the way painters react? So. Photography influences painting is a part that we'll, uh, that we'll talk about today. So we're going to talk about this kind of in two parts. We'll first kind of give a little overview prior to the break maybe of the interaction of painting and photography. And then we're going to come back and compare some specific paintings to some specific photographs and see what we can kind of find out about these two media and how they influenced one another uh, from... Uh, 1839 to, uh, to the late 20th century and see if we can kind of see some of these things. 
So uh, as we do so, we're going to come up with a bunch of different pieces of the puzzle. Uh, but a couple of things that we'll see is you know, not only how the interaction occurred, but also one of these basic tenets of the course, which is that in 1839, the world was ready for photography. It was ready to have photography happen. And there's this fabulous quotation. And just this, every time I see this, it just kind of takes me aside. Our busy age does not, have always time, does not always have time to read, but it always has time to look, says Theophile Gautier, a social critic of the mid-19th century. So here's a guy writing in 1858 a quotation that defines my life today, right? I mean, you know, I used to pride myself on reading a daily newspaper usually two once a day. Anybody read a daily newspaper, like a physical, actual daily newspaper still? A couple of you do. What do you read, just because I'm curious? Wall Street Journal. Wall Street Journal. <laughs> the art section. The art section. The art section, that's it. I just go cut right to the, get through all the, all the crappy news parts, and I just go right to the art section. So, <clears throat> but this is a fascinating idea. It's fascinating for so many reasons, but it's especially interesting for us to think about as we think about ourselves in some ways as historians. Our busy age does not always have time to read, but it always has time to look. To you and me, living in 2014, 2014 seems to be the most sped up world you could possibly imagine. You know, Andrew's describing earlier that people shooting the Olympics are having pictures posted on the internet mere seconds after they have shot them, uh, even after being edited by editors uh, who are then posting them immediately to the wire services and to news sites. So our world has sped up, and to us it seems like it's sped up immeasurably more than we can possibly even imagine, and yet here's Gautier saying in 1858, he feels the same way. So you know, when we kind of feel like our world is one that we can't comprehend, everyone's world has been that way. Everyone's life has felt like it's slightly beyond their grasp, which, you know, if, if nothing else happens uh, in terms of what you sort of think about today, thinking about the fact that somebody, you know, 150 years ago is sort of contemplating the same problems uh, that, that we were dealing, that we're dealing with now. So, a <clears throat> busy age does not always have time to read, but it always has time to look. So when photography was invented, here are some 19th century landscape photographs, early landscape photographs. When it was invented, what's interesting to note is the idea that what these photographers were up to was trying to figure out how to make pictures more rapidly. Or, in the case of people like Fox Talbot, better because he was a draftsman of, un, what did he say, a draftsman of uneven skill. Kind of describes my drawing abilities, right? So they were trying to figure out how to make pictures of things that they wanted to make pictures of that were similar to the kinds of pictures that were being made in their era by painters and people who were doing drawings. So what's fascinating is that when we look at these pictures, they are stylistically no different from the kinds of pictures that you would have seen at that time period. They are pretty much exactly the same as the pictures you would have seen at that time period. So that whole idea of the photograph mirroring or mimicking the kind of painting that was made was one thing to think about. 
Another thing to think about is that the still life photographs that we see at the beginning of the medium, well, those still life photographs, we can sort of explain away photographically as saying, well, now that we know that exposures were many minutes long, still life subject matter was a great solution to the problem of being a photographer because what you wanted to do was take a picture of a thing and if it wasn't going to move for 10 minutes, that was a huge advantage. Well, take a look. There they are, subject matter that we can explain photographically. And yet, if we look at paintings from the same era, they are similar types of subject matter. They are subject matter that isn't going to move. And the objective was more about expression of idea, showing the beauty of the natural world in this case, than it was about anything else. So when we look at these things, what we're looking at is not only the convenient subject matter that wasn't moving, but we're also looking at the sort of way in which we see these kinds of subjects being mirrored from uh, the painter's world. So, uh, and coming from such beginnings, it's not at all surprising that photography kind of began to think about different ways that it could be used for the service of painters. So what we got was photographs that were made to be sold to painters so that painters could mimic them, could imitate them, so that they wouldn't need to hire the model, so that what we would get would be a painting or a photograph like this that might be eventually translated into a great painting like Eugene Delacroix's Odalesque. A guy named Gustav Tissander wrote a book, A History and Handbook of Photography. He wrote this in 1878, A History and Handbook of Photography. And in it, he said, the daguerreotype carries to such perfection certain essential aspects of art that it must become an object of study and observation to even the greatest of painters. A collection of photographs is indeed an inexhaustible source of useful information for the artist. So, you know, why wouldn't you have those, those collected photographs so that you had some basis on which to base your paintings? He even advocated that painters take up photography themselves because he figured that, you know, some of them might want to make subjects in photographs that they couldn't buy uh, at the store. And he says, I, you know, and I, sometimes I just give you these things because I like the way these 19th century people wrote. He said that, that uh, painters should take up photography themselves so that they might, as he puts it, supplement their own manual memoranda. What does he mean by that? I love deciphering these things. When I come across them, I think, like, what does he mean? That a painter would take up photography so that they could supplement their own manual memoranda. Anybody know any painters? You know, people who paint canvases? Do they sometimes make a sketch ahead of time? Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe a variety of them? So supplement their own manual memoranda that they might be able to take photographs instead of making a bunch of sketches. Uh, and he also included in the back of his book, this Tissander guy, uh, a list of potential places where a painter could go and buy photographs because there were a lot of places that would sell pictures like these. So there was an artist named Gustave Courbet. We've got Courbet's painting on the right. Courbet was an artist of the mid-19th century who was one of the first artists to use photographs to paint from. 
And some of his canvases clearly show that he was looking at photographs of the scene while painting them. He wrote a letter to a friend in 1855 and he said, photography comes forward with its rich resources and presents them to the artist. He may collect together in his portfolio photographs showing every attitude, every character, every variety of nature. And we can really see what's happening to Courbet or with Courbet here. He's taken this Adolphe Braun photograph and almost slavishly imitated exactly what it looks like. Except what? Except what? What else is he doing? He's coloring it. He's coloring it, first of all, right? So he's adding in the, the missing factor of color that was missing in the middle of the 19th century. And what you can't see. He's adding in what you can't see in the photograph, which is? The mountain range. Mountain range, which in Braun's photograph is sort of there, but not really. You know? Clouds. And then the long exposure in Adolfo Braun's photograph has done what? Blurred. Made the water into a kind of a featureless thing, right? So the water doesn't really look like water. It looks like a mirror or something. Whereas what Courbet has done is sort of painted the way we would expect the water to be seen with a variety of different textures and colors and a nice reflection. You know, we can see the reflection, but it's pretty much, pretty much been obliterated in terms of its detail because of the long exposure, whereas Courbet paints that. But it's really interesting to see how he even just goes down to this level of detail of the landscape that is at the photographer's sort of left hip to show us the sense of scale, the sense of perspective <laughs> of where we are in, in the image. Courbet interacted with his contemporaries in photography in a lot of different ways. Uh, beginning with his enthusiasm for having his own paintings photographed. He was really intrigued by the idea that he could make a single painting and have a photograph made of that painting that could then be reproduced infinitely. That was sort of an interesting idea for him. If you think about it, it's become part of the art world of today, right? Photographing the art piece and then reproducing it in some way. So before the invention of photography, the only way to reproduce a painting was through etchings. And photography offered a much more accurate means of doing that. Courbet embraced it. thought it was really an awesome idea. Another interesting thing about Courbet is that he also kind of seems to have presaged some of photography's stuff. So here he is in a painting uh, from the 1860s, 1869, called The Great Wave, or The Wave. And He's making a kind of a stop-motion picture. Before that idea was really available in photography. And he's sort of anticipating in some way photography happening. So we can begin to see that kind of push-me-pull-you that's happening between these two media. And then we've also spent some time talking about this photograph, Raylander's rather Two Ways of Life. And uh, talking about the way, you know, where it came from and what it was about and the idea that it was intended as an allegorical picture. And the question sometimes comes up, you know, where did Raylander come up with this idea? And at least in part, he came up with it from Raphael, 1511. Raphael's School of Athens, which is basically the same idea. So Raylander is mining the past to go and find subject matter that fit photographically the kinds of ideas that he was interested in approaching. 
So what the world began to realize as photography became more and more popular was that photography itself could produce a more accurate likeness of something, anything really, better, faster, and more easily than ever before. Peter Henry Emerson, we've talked about him as that sort of photographer, but also sort of writer about how photography should be practiced in the, in the 1890s. And he's writing a critique here of fellow photographer Julia Margaret Cameron's work. We'll look at a couple of her images here. So this is uh, Emerson writing, hitherto the medium of photography has been used to imitate the conventions of painters. But for seeing the thing as it really is, for recording the very gist marrow of life, bone marrow of life, its possibilities have only lately been demonstrated and appreciated by artists imbued with this new spirit, like Cameron, who he begins to recognize is capable of doing something that paintings couldn't do. In this case, perhaps expression, emotion, the sense of emotion that uh, the paintings was, weren't able to accomplish. When photography had burst on the scene in 1839, a lot of painters felt that all of this excitement about photography's arrival was like the ringing of the death bell for them. I mean, they figured, you know, what happens now? Now that you can make a picture fast, cheap, and easy, where are we going to be? What are we going to be up to? How can we survive on into the future if photography is now doing everything that we had done? Specifically, photography was now starting to make pictures of people. Pictures of people had been the thing that most people recognized as being the sort of mainstay of the painter's world. I mean, you know, we can look at all the great art museums in the world and see lots and lots of paintings of all sorts of different things, but a lot of them are people. But there are lots and lots of paintings that aren't in museums at all that are paintings of ordinary folks. Not maybe ordinary folks, because you know you had to have some means to be able to have a portrait painted. But if you're Charles Baudelaire, you might have had a painting made of yourself. So Baudelaire, anybody know who Baudelaire was? Great uh, philosopher critic of his era, uh, French critic. So here's what he said about photography. As the photographic industry was the refuge of every would-be painter, every painter too ill-endowed or too lazy to complete his studies. This universal infatuation with photography bore not only the mark of blindness and imbecility, but also had the air of a vengeance. I do not believe, or at least I do not wish to believe, in the absolute success of such a brutish conspiracy, in which, as in all others, one finds both fools and knaves. But I am convinced that the ill-applied developments of photography, like all purely material developments of progress, have contributed much to the impoverishment of the French artistic genius, which is already so scarce. <laughs> He's not fond of photography. You almost can see it in his likeness here as a photographic image, and yet, even though critics like Baudelaire said, I don't know whether this is going to go anywhere. But why did he pose for it? Because 
the you know, yeah, yeah. Maybe that was a picture of a painting of him. Why, you know, why does anybody do something that you know, even though they kind of feel like, you know, I could, I'm I'm trying to think of an example in our contemporary time. You know, He's people, his bases. you know, people covering the bases. Maybe yeah. is probably the best way to say it. So, you know, even though there were critics like Baudelaire saying, I don't know about this thing, still in all. We began to recognize that whether it was Baudelaire, the great actress Sarah Bernhardt, or even a dead relative and their loving gaze, that what was happening was the photography was showing us the world more completely. The world more completely, especially when it came to people. One of the most interesting things to me, and I think I responded to this in some way to one of you, I don't remember over the, over the course of the last week uh, through Blackboard, is that in 1839, a curtain gets drawn a, a, away from the scene. It's like before 1839, we don't really have a clear view of what the world really truly looked like. And as soon as 1839 comes and the photography medium becomes part of the world, the curtain gets drawn aside and we have a much clearer picture of what it is that we're looking at. So people are beginning to recognize that portraits of people were something that photography could do really well. And what was really interesting was that the portrait photographer who would go throughout the countryside in their photography wagon began to replace the itinerant portrait painter. Portrait painters used to go around the countryside with their paints and canvases and so forth and offer to paint people's likenesses for a few nights lodging or a few meals or some money or whatever. And they began to slowly be replaced by the photographic equivalent who would make pictures of people out in the middle of, in this case, nowhere in their at least partially sod-based house. So the portrait painter's life began to be replaced by the portrait photographer's world. So we had mentioned, or I had mentioned a minute ago, the idea that uh, photographers began to make photographs for painters and uh, that sometimes painters would take up photography for themselves. So here's an example of, of a great uh, painter, Thomas Eakins. Thomas Eakins, a great American painter. We'll look at him here and then uh, after the break in a little bit, we'll talk about him a little bit more. Eakins was an artist who was obsessed with correct, correct drawing, probably is the best way to put it. What he wanted in his paintings was to make us feel as though the body was actually physically in the place. They were actually there somehow. And he did it through a real careful study of how muscles operated, how people held themselves. And those drawings, uh, those paintings rather, that he made oftentimes were informed by photographs that he made. So here's a photograph uh, that he made of the great poet Walt Whitman. And uh, uh, here is the painting that he produced from this photograph and several others, sort of combining little elements of those pictures. And what's interesting about this picture, this painted picture, is that Whitman kind of looks a little raggedy, right? I mean, he doesn't look like the great poet of his era, the person really generally referred to as the greatest poet of his time then as now certainly American poet. 
And yet he looks a little, you know, he's slouchy, he's a little rumply. And here's what Whitman said about this painting. He said, the portrait sets me down in correct style, without feathers, without fuss of any sort. Well, if we know anything about Walt Whitman and his poetry, that makes perfect sense because he wasn't someone to sort of beat about the bush, right? He kind of got to the point right away, sort of the hallmark of his poetry. In fact, Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, how many people have at least read parts of Leaves of Grass? The entire thing. You read the entire thing? No. Got to read at least part of it. Leaves of Grass, one of the great American pieces of literature. So Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass, which is a, a sort of uh, a new poetic medium uh, in his era, unconstrained free verse that Whitman intended to speak with photographic accuracy about the way the world was. So one section of the book begins with the words, of the terrible doubt of appearances, of the uncertainty after all that we may be deluded. I'll give you that again of the terrible doubt of appearances, of the uncertainty, after all, that we may be deluded. Appearances. He really wants very much to have us very specifically understand that the world is real and that his poetry is going to be about the real world. But really importantly is this frontispiece from an original version of Leaves of Grass. Whitman in Leaves of Grass created a sweeping vista of America, an America that rose from the wilderness, and he helped himself out, and America, he says, helped itself, by the new technology of photography. Rather than including his name on the frontispiece of the book, Whitman created a photographic likeness of himself to be printed on the frontispiece of the book. Rather than his name, he uses a photograph, presenting himself visually in photographic form instead of his name, instead of his signature. Like his poetry, he is a physical body as well as a mind and a sensibility. Leaves of Grass starts out, Camarado, this is no book. Who touches this touches a man. Camarado, this is no book. Who touches this touches a man. So he's actually conflating together these two things, photography and the expressive idea, all in one piece. Really, really interesting that instead of his signature, instead of his name, it's a photographic likeness of Whitman in the original version of Leaves of Grass. So this Eakins guy who painted Whitman was really interested in musculature, the way the body worked, the way things looked in the real world. And because of that, he was really fascinated by the work of Edward Moybridge and these stop-motion pictures that we've looked at at least once before. We'll look at it at least once again coming up. Really fascinated by these things. Really interested in showing us how the body moved. And of course, Moybridge was photographing not only the stop-motion horse, but he'd figured out, as we'll see now and also a little bit more detail later, how to make a camera 
two cameras, in fact, fire, two or three cameras, fire at the same moment in time from two different positions so that he could record the way this guy's arms looked as he's lifting here and here. And we could begin to examine the way muscles looked as they moved through space. Careful examination using photographic methods. So let's move on. Let's move on to the Impressionist painters. The Impressionist painters, like, for example, Monet here. So those of you who've looked at Impressionist paintings more than one time, which is probably most of us because the Art Institute of Chicago has such an incredible collection of Impressionist work, especially by Monet, that we've noticed that the paintings are kind of odd in some way. Because the Impressionists didn't actually paint the objects. In their mind, what they were painting was the light reflecting off the objects. They were saying, you know, it's not really the tree. It's the light coming off of the tree. And so when we look up close at an Impressionist painting like this, what we begin to see is that the object almost starts to dissolve a little bit. It doesn't actually exist in a, in a kind of solid form. What we're looking at is the way in which light reflects off these objects and how that light seems to work for us as subject matter. And what I think is really interesting here is that one of the things that we've talked about a couple of different times is how people loved looking at photographs with magnifying glasses. We don't do it very often anymore. I suppose we do in some way by zooming in in Photoshop or Lightroom or Aperture or whatever, but you know, we don't really spend a lot of time looking at photographs with magnifying glasses. But in the 19th century, it was a very common thing to do. And when looking at a photograph with a magnifying glass, you begin to see the little crystals that made up the structure of the photograph. So it's interesting to think that the, that the uh, uh, Impressionists, while looking at light as subject matter, in some ways were approaching the idea of making a picture somewhat like, somewhat like uh, uh, photographers were. We've also seen the sort of oddball aspect of photography being ultimately a very modernistic image-making device. Modernistic. Modernistic because it abstracted the world all by itself. And one of the interesting things about the camera is that it creates an abstraction almost without us doing anything. Because we arbitrarily draw a boundary around the frame of whatever it is that we're, you know, whatever we're photographing. And if we think about it, this is one of the fundamental differences between being a painter and being a photographer. All of us have made a drawing at some point, right? What do we start out with? Border. Stick figures. Stick figures. <laughs> Andrew's drawings. Stick figures. <laughs> you start out with a blank piece of paper, right? And a mark maker, whether it's a crayon or a pencil or a paintbrush or a you name it, you start out with nothing. And has anybody ever taken a drawing class? Yeah, me too. Did you learn how to draw? I learned how to draw. Anybody can learn how to draw. If, if, if I can learn how to draw, I'm here to tell you anybody can learn how to draw. Um, so, you know, right after that guy told me that I should become an art major, I learned how to draw. It wasn't pretty, but it was doable, right? And for those of us who've taken a drawing class, the hardest part for me when to stop? 
right? When to stop? When do you stop making marks? Because if I'm trained from early childhood, eight years old, when I got my first camera, to fill the frame with the important stuff, what happens when I'm told to start with a blank frame? <laughs> it's frightening. And then you don't know how to stop making marks when you should stop. So photographers are editors. Our job is to remove from the world the essential elements of the way that scene should look, leaving behind all the other stuff that we don't need. Whereas painters, painters are creators. They start with nothing, and they get to choose all the stuff that they put in the frame. So when we looked at O'Sullivan last week, we talked about how he was sort of making these really interesting abstract shapes out of the sky that was blank in his pictures, and these giant forms that he's dealing with in the photographs. And he's doing that partly because he's probably a, you know, he's certainly a, a very competent image maker, but he's also doing it because naturally photographic technology abstracts the world. And then lastly, we have this dilemma that we'll come back to a couple of different times of how photography is an art. Is it an art? What kind of art is it? If photography had come from the world of art, if photography was supposed to be all about art, then how is it that we can figure out how art is supposed to look if it's made with a camera instead of a paintbrush or made with a camera instead of a pencil? So uh, an artist kind of tried to figure out how to do all of this stuff. One of them was Picasso. Because Picasso said, when one sees when, what one can express with photos, it becomes clear that some things are no longer the task of the painter. Why should the artist insist on portraying something that can be captured just as well by the camera? That would be stupid. Photography has come along, Picasso goes on to, uh, to say, photography has come along at just the right time to free painting from all literature, from the anecdote, and even from the object. In any case, a certain aspect of the object has to belong in the future in the realm of photography. Shouldn't painters use their newly won freedom to do something different? So those three things that he mentions, free painting from literature, the anecdote, and even from the object. So what's an anecdote? A story. Literature, meaning, you know, going back to the, to the Bible or other sources for subject matter, an object. Picasso says, why do we need story? We don't need story anymore. Photography is doing story. There were some uh, people attempting to figure out how to make photography look like an art by using processes like gum bichromate to make photographs look more like paintings. And yet, as Laszlo Moholy-Nagy said, this century belongs to light. Photography is the prototypical method of light construction, if only in transposed form. From now on, painting can concern itself with purer, more constructive approaches to color. So where we've arrived now is a sort of overview of this, this dilemma and this problem. And what we'll do after we take a break is we'll look at a couple of specific paintings, a couple of specific photographs, and we'll kind of see if we can reach a, 
reach a conclusion on. So again, what we're going to do is really just, you know, sort of quickly look through some specific comparisons of paintings and photographs and see if we can kind of come up with something approximately 20-year intervals except right around the turn of the century because you may have already started to notice this. The turn of the century between the 19th and 20th centuries, you may have started to see, holy cows, there are a lot of ghost stuff going on. Photography changes a whole lot and does a whole lot of stuff right around that time period. Maybe the 20 years on either side of that turn of the century. And we might even think about that time period as being photography's golden age, that, that uh, 40 <coughs> years, 20 on either side of the, of the turn of the century, the golden age of photography as it sort of morphs into a wide variety of different things. And it's one of the reasons that I find teaching this course in a, in a kind of non-sequential fashion to be a little bit easier. Because if we tried to figure out how to divide up photography's history in an even number of 15 weeks, we'd end up spending like eight of them around the turn of the century uh, because so many of things are happening at that time period. So, so if we look at an early Fox Talbot picture, this is a picture made in 1839 on Fox Talbot's estate where he lived. Again, a guy of leisure, a guy of uh, 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 you know, sort of noble birth, didn't really have to do much in terms of his, you know, he didn't have a job, never had a job, got to travel, you know, kind of a good life if you're Fox Talbot, right? So here he is making a photograph out in the woods near his home, and we can kind of see the, the sort of exuberant naivete that he's approaching the subject with. Well, let me sort of follow me here. He's not really framing anything that is particularly visually exciting, right? He's not sort of saying, oh, look, it's these three trees, or it's this light, or it's this path that we might not even really be able to see. He's just excited about being out there with his camera. In fact, Fox Talbot had so many of these cameras around the house, his wife, Constance Talbot, talked about them as being mouse traps. My house is full of mouse traps, she said, because these things were littered all over the house. You'd get, you know, build a new one or have a new one built and you'd have them all over the place. So he's very excited about this. This is not a classical composition. It's not a composition where, you know, if you brought this photograph into a class and began to critique it as a formal exercise, you wouldn't say, wow, that's a really great composition. You would just say, Hey, that's a really interesting look at the idea of light coming through the trees. So that idea of non-classic composition kind of plays out when we look at this painting by John Constable, also made in 1839. Constable was a painter who had come of age and become a fairly important painter in England, the same England that Fox Talbot was painting. And uh, Constable had a couple of things going on with his uh, ideas about about painting. One was that his enthusiasm was the same kind of enthusiasm that Fox Talbot's was, about nature, nature with a capital N, and looking at the idea of how important nature was, but also about the sort of encroaching city as the city began to become more and more a part of the world of the rural person in the world of 1839, 1840, 1841, etc. As the Industrial Revolution begins to creep forward, people are beginning to recognize that this rural world that they existed in was beginning to slowly but surely go away. 
So Constable's talking about that in this picture, just to sort of decipher it so you can kind of see it. This painting, by the way, is on the wall at the Art Institute of Chicago, so if you want to go see it, uh, it's called Stoke by Nayland. It's the name of the town, the name of the place, Stoke by Nayland. So there's a wagon here, a couple of horses drawing the wagon, somebody sort of sitting up on top of some, uh, a little mound of earth or hay or something, talking to someone else who's leaning over the fence, and then this view to the distant uh, area beyond. When we look at the way in which Constable painted this, we're looking at these kind of exuberant brush strokes. He's not trying to paint with a supreme degree of accuracy. He's much more interested in the excitement or enthusiasm about how he's approaching the subject matter of the painting. So we're looking at paint that is kind of applied in this not necessarily haphazard way, but it's applied in a kind of excitable way. So that same kind of enthusiasm that Fox Talbot is approaching the landscape with is the same kind of enthusiasm Constable is approaching the landscape with. And the point, of course, is that people were interested in pictures. Pictures, but pictures that were more than pictures. That was the thing that was happening here at this time period, is that people were beginning to get more and more excited about how pictures could mean something beyond just a picture of a thing, of a place, of an object, their idea was how pictures could begin to mean something. So Constable is doing it in his way. Fox Talbot is beginning to explore that idea photographically in his own way. So then we have Timothy O'Sullivan, a photograph we've looked at before, Vermilion Creek Canyon. Vermilion Creek Canyon, and he's, remember O'Sullivan is this guy who is looking at uh, the landscape, not necessarily for its beauty, but for its utility, right? You know, he's, he's out with survey expeditions. He's trying to figure out how to make photographs that show the way the landscape looks, show how the landscape looks so that they get some idea of what it is they could do with it. However, one of the things that I said about O'Sullivan a little bit earlier that I'll, I'll say again is while the guy is making photographs that are intended to be kind of utility pictures, they're also really quite good. They're quite good in terms of their composition. They're quite good in terms of the way he structures the frame. And one of the things that I've always found interesting about O'Sullivan is how effectively he uses this blank sky shape to make kind of interesting shapes. If you think about the different ways that he could have approached this subject, less sky, less of the, the verticality of these cliffs, uh, perhaps moving his position left or right to change the shape of this sort of triangular shape of the sky, he's made a pretty interesting shape out of it. So we've already seen that Gustave Courbet was looking at photographs. And I have no idea whether Courbet looked at Timothy O'Sullivan's photographs, but we know that he was looking at photographs from that same time period. So here he is, a Gustave Courbet painting from about the same time period, about the 1860s. All right, so, and one of the things that I want you to think about is how Courbet is beginning to think about the way that he's painted these forms and shapes in these cliffs. And I'll toggle back here to O'Sullivan's picture and then to Courbet's picture, and back to O'Sullivan's picture and then to Courbet's picture. And one of the things that I'm hoping you're noticing is that while O'Sullivan is showing us the planar shapes of these cliffs, by using different values, choosing a time of day which describes where the sun is, but 
this dark value and this lighter value and this darker value and this rock over here in a slightly backlit value. Courbet is doing the same thing. He's painting by virtue of value. So while we can sort of look at the blue sky, which he gets to fill in with blue and clouds, we can also look at how he's really just painting these things by virtue of their value, their brightness, their lightness, their darkness, not in terms of color. We're only seeing these different things as different planes by virtue of whether they're light or dark, or the lightness against the darkness, which begins to help define front to back. So I don't know whether Courbet was really actively saying, hey, look, the photograph can show us all of the detail of the world just by using differing values. Why don't I try that? But subconsciously, I'd be willing to bet that he's at least experimenting with those ideas, experimenting with how changes of value can change the way we see objects. These paintings, or these photographs rather, are by Thomas Eakins. Now, we talked about Eakins a few minutes ago. He's the guy who photographed Walt Whitman. And here he is photographing his students at the Philadelphia Art League out for a skinny dip swim. School was a little more liberal back then, <laughs> right? So he's photographing his students. And you can see, first of all, that these are not particularly great photographs, right? Eakins wasn't a particularly good photographer. But take a look at what he's done in terms of photographing how these bodies are positioned of all of these different kids and a few adults and so forth and so on having fun at the swimming hole. And one of the things that you can begin to see is some interesting little ways about like this guy beginning to dive and this guy leaning up and grabbing a rock to kind of climb out and this guy about to jump in and this guy exhibiting, for those of you who have art, had art history, you remember that? Contraposto, contraposto, a Renaissance idea that suggested an importance of how weight was distributed. That when there was lots of weight on one leg and a very small amount of weight on another leg, the hips shift, giving a sense of life to the figure, right? I see you art historians back there nodding, so you're remembering. I remember that. You wouldn't maybe have remembered it, but you know, maybe you do remember it, that's great. So here he is, weight on one leg, less weight on the other leg. You know, we've got this guy sort of beginning to maybe slip off the rock into the water, this guy climbing up. So Eakins uses these photographs to make one of his most important paintings. I wanna make sure that I get the dates here before I the problem of almost using your notes, right? So here is one of his most important paintings. It's called The Swimming Hole, and he worked on it between 1883 and 1885. So it's not a painting made in a month or a week or a weekend. It's a painting made over the course of two and a half or three years, 1883 to 1885, all right? So the interesting thing about what he's done here is how he's used the photographs to help him articulate his interest in human form and accuracy of human form. And I hope that one of the things that you're noticing is that when we go back to the photographs, 
and I'll go back to the painting here in a second, that he's not actually used a single particular body in any single particular place. He's used an arm here, a calf here, a torso there, the beautiful contraposto here, but returned it, you know, turned it around, right? And established this gorgeous triangular composition that happens. He's even included the dog. If you notice the dog in a couple of the photographs. And this guy making this sort of, you know, wonderful amateurish dive. And what's cool about it is that it's not just like a dive that looks like, you know, it's badly painted in terms of amateur. It looks like somebody who doesn't really, you know, has never been taught how to dive, diving. Let's hope there's enough water there, right? You know, so. So, and also notice how little impact the background has. In fact, the background is only important in terms of giving us a sort of sense of the bucolic nature of nature and putting this beautiful figure against dark background so that we kind of have some contrast to look at. So again, Eakins is not necessarily slavishly imitating the photograph, but he's recognizing that the photograph is a subject that he can go back to over and over and over again as he makes the painting and begins to assemble from these painted parts individual pieces that he can begin to think about as a larger idea of, this, of his painting. Alvin Langdon Coburn. Coburn uh, made this photograph called The Bridge in Venice in 1902. And um, make sure I get my dates right. 1902. And uh, one of the things that's interesting about this photograph is that it's just after the turn of the century. Just after the turn of the century. So if we think about when this is, it's during a time period when photographers are really trying very hard to define the medium as art with a big capital A. They're really interested in having photography be an art form. And to do that, they're experimenting with all these different processes. In this case, gum bichromate over platinum. I'll sort of dissect that a little bit. Gum bichromate over platinum. So the platinum print, which we talked about some time ago, replaces silver metal with platinum metal and produces a very long, smooth tonal scale from beautiful, rich, deep blacks to creamy, beautiful whites, and every tonal value in between. But it's a monochrome process. So oftentimes, photographers like Coburn would take that same negative and the same print that the platinum print was on and now coat it back over with this gum bichromate emulsion. And then put the negative back in exact registration so that the negative was exactly in the right place on the piece of paper and make a second exposure with this new gum bichromate emulsion, in this case in a kind of an orangey ochre yellow. All right? But he didn't quite get the negative back in exactly the same place. You can kind of see it here, that the water starts to kind of dissolve a little bit. It doesn't really look exactly right because the negative isn't in exactly the same place with the gum print as it was for the platinum print. Two different images, same actual negative, but two different images, one in platinum, one in gum on top of it. 
And what happens is we get this sort of weird impressionistic look to the water. Now, if we think about the fact that the impressionists were doing what they were doing a full 40 or 50 years before this, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? Because here's a photographer just after the turn of the century playing with the idea of making an impressionist looking photograph. Where does he come up with that idea? Well, he comes up with it from Monet. Here's Monet's La Grenulaire. And he's using the same basic idea of how to describe water, choppy water, by kind of painting it by not painting it. Painting reflection and shadow, reflection and shadow, reflection and shadow. Coburn does the same thing. Part of what I'm trying to show is that this isn't a one-sided endeavor. It isn't that painters like, you know, do this thing and then photographers do something leapfrogging them ahead. Here's a photographer saying, you know, if what we want is for photography to be an art form with a capital A, let's figure out how to make our photographs look like the paintings that everybody already understands are art with a capital A. Was that his intention? Probably. Knowing, knowing what we know about the, uh, the era that these guys were in and the whole pictorialist and photo-secessionist era that we'll actually spend some time talking about in a few weeks. Un not unlikely. Another one of those photo-secessionists was Edward Steichen. You'll remember that Steichen was Stieglitz's right-hand man. Again, I recognize that these two guys are really confusing. I mean, you know, even I kind of sometimes kind of which one is which. Stieglitz is the leader of the photo-secession group. Steichen is sort of his, his right-hand man, his buddy. And as we'll see, Steichen kind of outpaced Stieglitz in a wide variety of eras, <laughs> areas, um, and they had a falling out, and it was messy and so forth. But at some point during this photo-secessionist era, and part of what created the fallout between Steichen and Stieglitz, is that Steichen decides that he can become a pretty interesting and important commercial photographer. Stieglitz believes that this pretty much ruins him. You know, instead of being a full-on artist, you know, pandering to commerce is bad in Stieglitz's mind. But Steichen says, why not? Because I have the opportunity to photograph J. Pierpont Morgan. Who was J. Pierpont Morgan? I heard it back there. A banker. J.P. Morgan. That's the one. Founded the Federal Reserve. Founded the Federal Reserve, right? So here's a guy in 1902 who is, if not the wealthiest man in America, certainly one of them. If not the wealthiest man in the world, certainly one of them. So it's interesting to take a look at this picture from the point of view of how Steichen approaches making a photograph of someone who is rich and very powerful. So first of all, does this look like a guy that you would mess with? No. Probably not, because he looks like he's ready to eat you for lunch. Oh, breakfast, you know, he's going to eat you for breakfast because he's going to turn his sights to something bigger for lunch. So he's got this sort of flashing eye 
very intense gaze. And there is some symbolism going on in this picture that Steichen probably, in fact, he talked about it a little bit that he wanted to kind of symbolically talk about this guy. So one thing is that he's firmly grasping the arm of the chair. He's got a firm <coughs> grasp, a firm grip on the present situation. And the arm of the chair has this weird little reflection that turns the firm grasp into a grasp on a knife, a blade, a flashing blade. It's his time by virtue of the timepiece. The rest of the picture is black. It is just his eye, his time, his grip, his blade. Everything else is sort of subdued in favor of the symbolic intent of this particular image. So this idea of photography being able to symbolize things is pretty important because photography really wasn't perceived as being a medium that was capable of symbolic intent. There was a group of painters working at about the same time who began to use color in a different way than most painters had used color before. Uh, they began to use it in a direct and non-descriptive way, and they became known as the Fauves, F-A-U-V-E-S, the Fauves. Now, fauve, loosely translated in French, is like wild thing, wild animal, wild thing, wild thing, wild thing, all right? So it's a wild, a wild thing, maybe a, maybe a beast, maybe not an animal, but maybe like, you know, a beast, a wild thing. So the fauve painters were kind of embracing the idea of being wild. One of them wrote, it was the era of photography. This influenced us and played a part in our reaction against anything that resembled a snapshot of life. It was the era of photography. We didn't want to make a snapshot of life. And so they began to make colored images in ways that photography couldn't approach because it hadn't really dealt with color yet, but also because they recognized that, like Picasso had said, why do what photography can already do well? If photography can make a highly symbolic portrait, why can't painters do something else? Like Matisse in his painting, Portrait of Madame Matisse, often referred to, fairly obviously, or for fairly obvious reasons, as the green stripe. The green stripe. So, let's take a look at how Matisse has approached the idea of this picture. He's approached it with the idea that what he's up to is defining shapes, planes, and forms. Shapes, planes, and forms, the form being the dimensional aspect, the plane being the flat aspect, the shape being triangle shape, etc., etc., by virtue of color. And you can see how he's using warm colors to define certain aspects of where he wants this to appear in space and cool colors to define other aspects. And not varying so much the value, but the intensity of the color to describe this as a darker shadow. And just as importantly, beginning to look at the idea of how we reference color, cyan over here, red over here, to define how we perceive those colors appearing in space. 
warm colors, reds and oranges and yellows projecting out, cool colors, blues, greens, and cyans going back in space. So he's approaching the idea of color in a completely radical way. Something new and different, something that nobody really thought of before, was to make this, this, uh, these kinds of pictures where uh, they liberated color from a descriptive fidelity. It wasn't supposed to be about describing something. It was supposed to be about how color moves the eye. Moving forward to 1907, we have Alfred Stieglitz. Alfred Stieglitz creating what most people refer to as the first truly modern photograph. Truly modern photograph. And we'll talk more about this photograph as we go along throughout the semester because it's one of those that we'll come back to in a, in a couple of different places. And the modernity of this picture has to do with the fact that it's built around its edges. The center of the picture is almost completely devoid of anything interesting where the edges have these really interesting shapes, lines that kind of go off into nothing, references of shape like this hat to the winch, references of the X here, of the gangplank and the mast to the X here. And Stieglitz talked about this image in a very formalistic way, talking about how its abstraction was more important than its subject matter. Its abstraction more important than its subject matter. In other words, it was for him the shapes and forms that made up the picture that were more interesting than the subject. And I'll tell you, there's you know, sort of a foreshadowing of what we'll talk about later, but he calls it the steerage. The steerage. The steerage, the place where the people who were the have-nots rode as opposed to the people who are the haves who rode up above. So while he says that it's its formal structure that's really interesting to him, he names it something that suggests a sociological concern as much as anything else, right? But so we kind of have to deal with that as a problem. Excuse me, do you think the blank center in the lower center represents the uh, kind of the feeling of steerage on, underneath? Darkness, entirely possible. Stieglitz at this particular time period was sort of, he, he, he had been raised uh, in, a, in a sort of modest way, but, but eventually uh, his parents were fairly well-to-do, and then Stieglitz himself married into a fairly well-to-do family, and he was kind of conflicted by his sort of modest upbringing, and then later in life, being having access to a particular echelon of society that he, he had, you know, so he, he writes about this dilemma when he refers to this photograph, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But, but yeah, it, it there's a lot of psychology in this picture from Stieglitz's point of view, uh, but in a in a photographic way, he talks about it very formally. He talks about the winch and the hat and the X and the X and the lines going off at various angles and so forth. So we already saw Picasso talking about how painters should want, use their newly won freedom to do something different. And so Picasso, in his painting here, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, the ladies of Avignon. When he says the ladies, he means 
the ladies of Avenue. A couple of things happen here. One is that Picasso posits the idea, what would happen, he thinks to himself, if I were to make a portrait of a person or multiple people and one part of the portrait was seen from over here, I'm looking at Anne, and another one seen from over here, and another one seen from up there, and another one seen from down over here. He's looking at it and thinking, why should the painter be forced to have one point of view? Why couldn't the painter have multiple points of view and use those multiple points of view in a single image? A second thing that happens is that painting begins to get much larger. So here is this particular painting on the wall at the Museum of Modern Art. So you can kind of get an idea of how big the picture is. And photographs at this time were all 8 by 10, 11 by 14, 16 by 20 maybe, right? So where does Picasso come up with this idea of what would happen if I saw the same subject from the front, from the back, from the side, from the top, all at once, and painted faces and bodies that were not seen from the same point of view? Where in the world would somebody come up with that idea? He comes up with it from Moybridge. At least it seems logical to me that he does. If Moybridge in the late 19th century was making these pictures where he had three banks of cameras, bank one, bank two, bank three. Here's the you know, one bank of cameras. Here are the plates that that camera produced. Such that he could figure out through mechanical machinery how to fire camera 1A, 2A, and 3A all at the same time so that he could get this same moment in time from several different points of view. Photography was doing this. Why is it illogical that painters would try to accomplish similar ideas? And the cool part about the painter's world, says Picasso, is well, I don't have to make three separate <coughs> photographs. I can make one painting with 20 or 30 points of view. Cubism. A much more commonly used example for what Picasso would call simultaneity of vision, simultaneity of vision, meaning you could see something at the same time from multiple points of view. A more commonly used example is Duchamp's nude descending a staircase, seen here in number one version, and then a second version, nude descending a staircase number two even more abstracted. So what the artists are doing is taking some of the things that they've seen in photography, that they've imagined in their heads, and doing exactly what Picasso told them that they could do you know, a few minutes ago by saying, you know, why shouldn't we use our newly won freedom to do something different? Why do we have to keep imitating story, literature, and object? Instead, why can't we explore the way the world might look through our eyes in a different way? 
And then, of course, we've got to come back at some point to Dorothea Lange's Migrant Mother from 1936. The mother, her face fraught with terrible worry, looks out from the frame of the picture toward a future that seems to be filled with more of the same. Her children, three of them, one, two, three, seeming to know that there's not much out there more than you know, additional pain and suffering and hunger, bury their faces in the worn cloth of their mother's dress. It's a picture that one of the reasons, of course, that I use it in this class in, in the way that I do is that, first of all, it's one of the few pictures that most everybody in the room has seen at least once before getting to the room because it has become such an important icon of a particular time period in our nation's history. But also because it is so incredibly powerful. It's powerful as a picture that describes a person's situation, a certain sort of spot in their life that seems hopeless and that seems like there's no way out. You know, even though there's sort of the look toward the, toward the future, yeah, it doesn't really look that good. So what's interesting is that photography is using symbolic ideas here pretty profoundly. I mean, this is a picture that's hard not to look at and be affected by in some way, uh, you know, in, in, especially if we know at least a little bit about the era of the Depression and the Dust Bowl, right? Yeah. Knowing a little bit about that certainly helps. So into this world came social realist painters like this guy, Ivan Albright. Here is a painting from 1941, unfinished. And then uh, I'll show you a couple of details here. I guess this one is the, this one's the finished painting. And I'll, I'll show you the details in the subsequent images. Let me give you the title of this, of this painting. Don't try to, uh, to write this down because it's a long title. The title of this painting is Poor Room. There is no time, no end, no today, no yesterday, no tomorrow, only the forever and forever and forever without end. Albright began the painting in 1941. And in the painting that he uh, finally eventually finishes in 1943, he shows, and I'll give you these details here, through the window of a dilapidated house, he shows this guy's life with all of the wreckage and material objects that he's collected over his life sort of strewn about him. A painting from a, a school of thought, an idea uh, period called uh, social realism, trying to explore the idea of what it is that this world, 1941, 1943, is dealing with, all right? So, what we can see here is that from Migrant Mother to this painting is not that great a leap because Migrant Mother is symbolizing its stuff in a particular way and Ivan Albright is using this idea of social realism to symbolize things in a different way. All of the stuff of life sort of just collapsed around this, this man sitting in his house uh, all alone, all by himself. So the 1950s in America brought tremendous prosperity. Tremendous prosperity. Country was on a roll, industry was moving, we'd won the war, everything was going really well. And into this world goes this Swiss photographer, Robert Frank. He wins a, a Guggenheim grant to travel around the United States and photograph the US and explore what it is that is happening in the United States in the early to middle 1950s. 
And what he ends up doing is creating a body of work that ends up being published in a book. We've got facsimile copies in the library called The Americans. And in this book, The Americans, he describes a country that is sort of self-absorbed, uh, that is uh, acquisitive, uh, that is much more interested in surface than it is in things under the, under the surface of things. And so he makes this picture, which is called Restaurant US-1, leaving Columbia, South Carolina. Now, I'm here to tell you that the picture isn't about a restaurant, it's not about US-1, and it has nothing to do with Columbia, South Carolina. It is a purely symbolic image intended to symbolize a particular time period in America. The televangelist Oral Roberts is preaching his message to an unpopulated cafe. This bright, overexposed light from the window is intended to deal with the idea of the atomic blast. The cafe is empty. Nobody's getting nourished. Nothing's happening. So we could look at the picture and we could say, the picture's really about a you know, table in a cafe and a salt and pepper shaker and a napkin dispenser and some chairs and a TV set and a fan and a window and a sink or whatever it is. But it has nothing to do with any of those things. Frank doesn't intend it to be about those things, and we can't read it about that. We can only read it to be about its time period. And it would help, of course, if we had the context of all the other 80-some pictures in the American's book to choose from so that we could kind of see how he posits who the Americans are in the middle of the 1950s. It's a picture that is purely symbolic. It has nothing to do with subject matter. It has nothing to do with what it is that we're looking at specifically, but it's much more about an idea, symbolizing an idea. So into this world, same world, comes the world of action painting. Jackson Pollock. Jackson Pollock. So Jackson Pollock had started this idea in the 1940s, carries it through the 1950s. Here is one of his paintings from the 1950s called Lavender Mist. Has anybody ever seen a Jackson Pollock painting up live and personal? What do they look like? Are they small? No, they're huge, right? They're giant. In fact, a Jackson Pollock painting might not fit on this wall. They're so big, some of them anyway. They are environments. Pollock made these pictures by doing something that artists had not yet done. He took the canvas off the easel and he rolled it out on the floor. And he painted by literally running across the canvas with turkey basters and paint buckets, his boots, smooshing and squidging and squirting the paint onto the canvas. If you've looked at the paintings, sometimes they are this thick with paint. They are paint. What's the subject of them? Paint, color, line, texture. Pollock does something that nobody had done before, which was take the idea of painting away from subject. Picasso said, let's get away from story, literature. Pollock finally does it and says, painting's about paint, painting's about color, painting's about line, painting's about so there's finally now this break. Photography is the ultimate symbolic medium. Painting now goes in another direction. 
until the 1980s when Olivia Parker comes along and says, wouldn't it be interesting if I started exploring the world of still life photography again? I mean, still life, a medium or a part of photography, a genre in photography that had kind of been left to languish in some ways. And Parker, not necessarily single-handedly, but certainly very effectively, brings photography back to an interest in still life. She works in color because she now has this color peel-apart Polaroid material that she can use to express herself and see what the result is in seconds after the image has been made with a 4x5 or 8x10-inch camera, adjust the lighting, adjust the filtration on the camera, adjust the development time for the Polaroid material to make it cooler or warmer, and start again, try again, until she gets the original that she wants. Exploring illusion, exploring the illusion of depth, exploring the illusions of color, and certainly working with subject matter that has a kind of ephemeral quality to it, like it's almost ready to disappear in some way. So she's exploring something new, trying something different, but bringing photography back in a way to the circular aspect of going back to still life imagery. While at the same time, painters like David Saleh were beginning to express instead ideas about figurative painting again. So as the pendulum swings toward realism in photography, it swings back toward realism in the painter's world. David Sale making paintings that are figurative, where correct drawing is important. And then we get to some other problems that we have to deal with when we start talking about painting and photography. Because what we're looking at here are photographs, Polaroid photographs, the kind of Polaroid photographs that got spit out of the camera, and then you waited for them to develop. You know, you'd shake them a little bit to see if they developed faster, which they wouldn't, but you know. But what Lucas Samaras, a painter and photographer, does with this material is he uses little uh, styluses to squidge around the dye that's inside this package of this Polaroid material. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Making painted images that are photographic underneath. Painting plus photography, using those two things simultaneously. Deb? I just saw somebody do that at an art fair. They were, they were really pretty. Um, and I asked them how they did it. It was just what you said. They, she's using Polaroids and she's using tools to squish it around. Exactly. And they look, they look like paintings. They, they have a real painterly quality. And they were still like. Were they original Polaroids, or were they scans of Polaroids that she's then printing in some way to make them bigger and yeah, they're bigger. reproducible? She had some small ones, but she had bigger ones, too, so I guess she must have seen some. Pedro Mayer. Pedro Mayer, a Mexican photographer. Some of you have visited his Zone Zero website. I know a couple of you have used him as photo history in the news. Zone Zero, great, great web uh, blog for photography. Mayer exploring here in the 1990s, reinterpreting Mexican myth using subject matter that he's combining in Photoshop, which at the bottom of it is a painting software. Photoshop is a painting software. <coughs> Martina Lopez taking her family history photographs and combining them with these 
kind of post-apocalyptic landscape images to create images that are both painted, photographed, realized in a certain way, you know, using painting software, Photoshop. Cindy Sherman, a photographer who has been photographing herself as self-portrait subject matter for probably 30 some years, portraying herself here as youthful Bacchus, just like Caravaggio. Because one of the problems here is that what we now have in our world is painters using photography and photographers using painting. There's almost no dividing line anymore. Scratch a photograph and there's a painting underneath. Scratch a painting and there's a photograph underneath. Joel Peter Whitkin, fairly obviously dealing with Venus, but a hermaphrodite Venus, exploring some ideas about some of the still life things that we talked about very early this afternoon, but exploring it in this other way, looking at photography as a sort of macabre, perhaps, activity. And again, coming up with these ideas from the history of painting. Another thing that's happened over our last few years is the way in which painting has, or photography rather, has gotten huge. Photographs are now ginormously big. It's not at all unusual to go into a photo gallery and see 40 by 60 or even larger inch photographs. It's provided a really interesting set of considerations for museums. For example, the very state-of-the-art uh, storage rooms for the very large collection that the Art Institute of Chicago has had to be enlarged because they had never conceived that they would need to store anything bigger than about 30 by 40. And now they're storing pictures that are you know, hundreds of inches long. They're trying to figure out how to do it. So they had to redo their... So here's Jeff Wall. His pictures are not uh, uh, printed on, uh, on reflective material. They're printed on translucent material and lit from behind, light boxes. So the actual object, in this particular instance, it's these two put together is one image, one, one piece. You can see how big these objects are. Jeff Wall, Edward Vertinsky, huge, giant photographs that are mimicking some of the ideas that painting had been involved with early on. And then, of course, that whole sort of push-me-pull-you thing that I want to come back to just to make sure that we get it, that here's Paul Outerbridge in the 1920s making Cubist-inspired photographs. So it's not so much that we can just say that painting pushed photography out of one avenue and that photography supplanted painting in one other avenue. It's really like going back and forth, back and forth. Paul Outerbridge clearly intending to make Cubist-inspired photographic images that confound our sense of what is right, where, where things are, how the world looks. Even Steichen, in two advertising photographs, one for shoes, one, one for a match company, making Cubist-inspired images that are intended to 
play with our visual sense of what is right, what is real in space. And of course, Steichen, as we saw before, we'll see again a little bit later on, here is portraying himself as an artist. He was. He was a painter before he began to be a photographer. And so he, here he is portraying himself with this gum bichromate process. So it's a kind of an odd set of circumstances between painting and photography. And one of the things that I'm hoping that you saw today, even if you, know, even if you didn't quite uh, get all of the connections, what I'm hoping is that when you go to a museum and you see a 20th century, mid 20th century painting, you have a little bit better context of how to understand it because you can't get it in a vacuum. And it's one of those things, you know, when I ask the people who are in our art history classes, like, did you ever talk about photography? No. Well, what a darn shame because without understanding photography and how it affected especially the turn of the century onward, it's really hard to understand modern art in any way, I think. So uh, that's what we have for today. If anybody has any... Uh...